for 15 years, an unidentified man laid in a vegetative state in a Coronado nursing home. His hospital wristband read, 66 Garage. The numbers spelled out in lieu of a first name. When investigative reporter Joanne Farian met 66 Garage while working in San Diego, she was compelled to figure out who he was. She quit her job to find out, and two years later, she found his identity. That's now the subject of a new Los Angeles Times studio podcast, Room 20. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is a special episode of your San Diego News Fix. Joanne Farringen, you're an investigative reporter, and you have a new podcast out, Room 20. Why don't you start at the beginning? What was it like when you first met this individual? Well, um, I want to tell you about how I heard about him. Um, I was reporting on people kept alive on life support in California nursing homes back in 2014 when the head of the nursing home, uh, Ed Kirkpatrick, said, do you want to hear a crazy story? There's this guy that has been kept alive for 15 years, Mm -hmm. and we don't know who he is, but he goes by the name 66 Garage. And, um, you know, of course... As a, as a journalist, I found all of that not just intriguing, but kind of shocking, and how can this be? And eventually, um, Ed Kirkpatrick allowed me into this man's room, room 20, um, when, I, when the nursing home first allowed me to start reporting on him. So what was it like the first time I, I yeah. met him? Well, um, so, you know, I was told he was in a vegetative state. Uh-huh. And I had been reporting on this population already for months. And being in a vegetative state isn't like being in a coma. So people imagine this, that someone is sleeping and their eyes are closed. Well, that's not at all what it's like. And so I already knew that, right? I already knew, okay, his mm-hmm. eyes are open. It doesn't mean that he has consciousness or is aware. Um, and so I treated him, and this is going to sound horrible, I mean, I treated him almost as though he wasn't in the room because the weird thing is when you're in a room with somebody in a vegetative state, you know, I felt very self-conscious, like, this is a human being, right? And by definition, this is a human being who doesn't have thoughts and feelings. There, You know, that part of their brain is not functioning. So um, I didn't treat him like you would treat you know, somebody who with a healthy brain where you make eye contact and mm-hmm. you smile and you somehow look them in the face, right? Um, I treated him like I had treated the other people on the unit. Obviously, you know, you don't, you, you want to be respectful, but... Um, it's like when you meet someone who like has Alzheimer's or dementia, it's like there's something missing there and you don't really know what to do at first. Yeah, it is like that. But even imagine but that... Worse. Yeah, yeah. Like sort of... Um, Somebody who's almost out cold, right? Mm-hmm. Their eyes are open, but they're, they've been knocked out. Mm-hmm. So when you heard this insane story from uh, Kirkpatrick? Yeah. From, from Ed, Ed. From, yeah. From Kirkpatrick. When did the switch click that you knew you had to solve this mystery? So I knew right away I, would, I wanted to tell this man's story. And uh, the nursing home eventually allowed me to do that because it could help identify him, right? Uh, if they got some publicity. He'd been there for 15 years. Um, so I, I knew as a reporter, of course I want to do this story. I, you know, most reporters would want to. And I had probably written, I don't know, maybe four or five stories about him, covered this for four or five months. And it was early 2015 
when um, I'm doing another story mm-hmm. and I'm in the room and Ed is in the room and I actually look into Garage's face and he smiles at me. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it completely catches me off guard. But but I'll back up a little bit. People in a vegetative state smile. Mm-hmm. They smile and they cry. Those are actually reflexes. And I knew that, right? I had reported that. Yet when it happens in this moment, it just felt completely different. It felt like some kind of connection. And Ed and I walked out of room 20, and I just said to Ed, he's in there, Ed. You know he is. And that feeling just didn't leave me. Um, Fast forward a number of months, and I end up quitting my job. And and I got to tell you, um, I didn't think it through. I'll be honest. This it was a Monday morning. Mm-hmm. My boss was on vacation. Um, I'll tell people don't ever send a resignation letter when you're to your boss when she's on vacation. It's like not a, a good idea. idea. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. I know it was a terrible idea, and it, it, you know, I think I wanted to go, and um, there were probably a lot of things going on in my life, but one of them was I wanted to do this story in a way that I think. Not even do this story, but um, kind of embark on this in the way that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Without, while well, a newsroom provides you safety and everything else, and obviously a paycheck, it also can confine you, right? Um, and every medium has the restrictions. Exactly. Like you can't tell the same story in the same way. Right. Right. The, would a newsroom have let me um, sit in this man's room for hours every day? For months and eventually years, no, and of course they can't let me do that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I thought, th- you know, and I didn't expect it to be that long. Quite frankly, I, I thought it was going to be a few weeks, maybe a few months, but um, no. So I think it was a, a combination of things that all kind of led to this Monday morning. It's like I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were called for an adventure almost, and you decided to say yes. Um. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will confess to listeners that um, I was married at the time. Um, that gave me some financial support, um, but then I will also tell you I ended up getting divorced halfway through, <laughs> so um, was kind of poor planning <laughs> on my part. Um, I, and, and as you hear in episode one, I had this personal connection to the newsroom, and I think honestly that's probably the thing that compelled me most. I had been at the nursing home reporting mm-hmm. on people on life support for many months. My stories were written. They were all to- they were told. And it was like I was done, and I didn't feel done. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I just needed to go back. So when you got the chance to actually go back, how did you start this reporting journey? Because there's not a lot to go off of. How did you start this unraveling this thread? You know, it's interesting. So I, the first thing I did is I sat in room 20, right? I got permission and uh, to be in the room, and I sat in this room, and I thought the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to just get to know the routine of this man's life. Um, and so that was part of it. In terms of the part, like, who who is he? That was already put into motion, right? My mm-hmm. earlier reporting had set into motion this this effort by a group of people, including the Border Patrol, um, the um, – Border angels, the nursing home, the Mexican consulate, because what you learn fairly early on, they believe that this man is a undocumented migrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the effort to sort of figure out what's his name, that was kind of in the works. How did he get? How did he get to San Diego? How did he get to this nursing home? What exactly happened to him? You're right. 
I didn't, I didn't know a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, he was. What I was told is that he was called Sixty Six Garage because that's the place his van was towed. They thought it was a van, and that he crashed. That he was the driver. Um, you know, I wasn't sure where that even came from. That's just sort of the story that was told by the nursing home uh, staff. And so, you know, I, um, I did what reporters do, and I don't know if you if you know what the, the term shoe leather. So in old-fashioned journalism, you know, we throw around the term shoe leather journalism where you literally pound the pavement, you knock on doors, and you do that. And mm-hmm. and that's actually what I started to do. And, and I'm embarrassed to tell you that I did spend some time literally driving. I knew it was around El Centro, driving uh-huh. around this area thinking maybe I'll see something that says 66 Garage. Uh, but I did. I did the regular things too, right? I uh, made a public. I made several public records requests mm-hmm. uh, to try and find the accident report. I made FOIA requests to see if the border patrol had anything, but without a specific date and all of that, it was tough. I searched archives, right? Newspaper archives, um, and I think my my first big um, hit, in, mm-hmm. or sort of the thing that kind of helped. Finally, I was able to find one newspaper article written in 1999 about the accident. And the weird thing is, it was in the Imperial Valley Press. And that the clippings from that spring and summer, they were missing. Like, I, from the online services. Weird. There were, though, yes, those months were gone. So, which is one of the reasons it wasn't coming up in my searches. So, the, actually, the newspaper office actually... Um, got a copy from their own archive, and they sent it to me. So right away, at least I have a location, right? And I have this information. And I'm not, I'm not gonna uh, sort of blow the whole story. Um, but what the theme in this podcast is: everything I think is true turns out not to be true. Mm-hmm. And there's a hint. But that was a starting point. Because when someone loses their voice, it's just people making assumptions on assumptions, which is kind of how this this man got trapped in a sense. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you put it so well, actually, when somebody loses their voice, you lose the ability to speak for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And it's those little things that give you this fake name. Yes. Yes. And your whole story becomes kind of, you know, there's a little bit of truth in it. And then it's it's like the game of telephone, right? Somebody repeats it, repeats it. And by the time it gets retold, you know, 20, 30 times, it doesn't resemble reality. And so... A lot of what I was doing was finding out what was true and what wasn't true. Mm-hmm. And you described what it is kind of like to spend some time with someone who has lost their consciousness and is in a vegetative state. So what's some of the science behind that? What is it like to be in that space and what do we know about it? Well, actually, we know very little about it about it when you um, I interviewed several um, neuroscientists and one of the things they'll say is like everyone has a different well not everyone but there's various definitions of consciousness what is it right um, Martin Monty is a UCLA neuroscientist and I think he sort of put it um, very clearly so when you go in for surgery and they um, they put you under right this nothingness mm-hmm. that's basically what being not conscious, right? There, uh-huh. There's a nothingness. And what is complete consciousness? It's you and I, right? Now, mm-hmm. people listening. The thing is, consciousness, what I learned, can be a spectrum mm-hmm. where you're not necessarily here we are and you're not necessarily completely out, but you can be somewhere drifting in and out of those states. And that's what they call minimally conscious. So even like when you're kind of asleep and you think you're remembering something, but you're in a dream, maybe not? I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's dreamlike, and I don't know that scientists are able to tell us that. 
really. Yeah. The one thing they are learning, um, and this won't blow anything in the podcast, um, that they get it wrong. In terms of diagnosing people um, being in a vegetative state, they're wrong 40% of the time. Um, in other words, that 40% of the time they say you're in a vegetative state, you're more likely to be minimally conscious. That is that sort of drifting in and out of consciousness. And I imagine when people spend a lot of time in these places, they read into things that they think are true or not. Some people say that family members and others deny reality of people that are in these states. What was it like to experience that firsthand as someone who developed a connection with someone without knowing them before they were unconscious? I love that question. Um, and to your point, yeah, that one of the when I first started writing about this population, I had said that. These fam- family members, I, I'm going to try to remember the line, is something that they're, they're cajoled into magical thinking, right? Their yeah. circumstances are so terrible that they have to believe that um, this isn't real. And suddenly I find myself in this room saying to Ed Kirkpatrick, the head of the nursing home, oh, you're wrong about this guy. He is conscious. Look what he can do. He, I am bonding with him. He is responding. Like, I'm not going to go too far into that. Yeah. You, 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 Episode one, listen to episode one. By the end of it, you kind of get the idea. And, um, and then I start having people who work at the nursing home actually look at me like I am becoming one of these family members. And, um, and and again, the podcast kind of reveals I have my own personal reasons mm-hmm. for kind of going down this road um, of believing something that you just you just I don't even know if it's because you want to believe it. Um, I think it's really hard to be in a room with another human being and um, especially a human being that that shows signs that that he's suffering and not feel a bond over time, not tr- you, I told you, you asked me what it was like when I first met him, and I tr- didn't treat him like I might treat a healthy person. It's right? like your mind assumes they're essentially dead. Yes. And then I spent, I started spending some time in that room, and it's like, oh my God, this is a human being, and you can't help but start becoming a human being in return, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so does that trick me into thinking that maybe. I'm seeing things that that aren't really there, or is it just because you can't help yourself, right? When when you're in this situation, mm-hmm. it's really strange liminal space to experience. I can imagine. And after all of this, how has your perspective changed on people living on life support? Well, you know, when I first started doing these stories in 2014, I think um, well. It keeps it's changed many times. Yeah. The very first answer I would have given you is, oh, I would have said, keep me on life support because my image was what I had seen in the movies. Again, we think somebody's asleep, right? And then they'll just wake up one day. And then I report on this population. I learned it's nothing like that, right? It's it's like all of these procedures are being done to you constantly to keep you alive, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's miserable. It's horrible. Um, the, the thing that you learn about in the podcast, it's this thing called suctioning. So keeping you alive means you've got a tube in your stomach and a tube in your throat. And um, people in this state can't cough up music, mucus and they have to be suctioned. And it's it's a gross, horrible thing where they stick a little tube down your the hole in your throat and they suck out mucus. And when this is being done, 
people are, and whether it's a reflex or whether it's pain, they're definitely reacting. Yeah. So I, I would witness that. So I thought, oh, this is a horrible existence. I would never want to be kept alive this way. And then I go back, right? And mm-hmm. I'm there over a longer period of time. And, and now my opinion starts to change again. And I start learning about science that says, well, maybe, maybe there is something we can do for this population. So, um, I mean, it probably depends on the day that you ask me. What I can tell you, though, um, I think the whole my whole takeaway is that we have more than 4,000 people in the state of California living in this way, uh-huh. in nursing homes, right? And the state actually pays for their care because some somewhere along the wa- line, someone has decided to keep them alive in this way. I think the bigger question is what is our obligation to them as human beings at the end of the day? So mm-hmm. if we're going to put somebody in a bed 24-7 and they're going to stay there for 10 or 15 or 20 years and that's the rest of our life, do we have as a society some ethical obligation to provide them with more than just life-saving medication and procedures? Do we Should somebody be holding their hand three hours a day? I don't know. Should someone be talking to them? singing to them, doing all of these sort of things that make us human at the end of the day. Um, I think that's more what I my takeaway is, okay, if we're going to do this, um, you know, what is our obligation as humans? Yeah, and imagine, like, for you, it's frustrating in which people always jump to conclusions with these kind of things. And we really struggle to have that nuanced conversation, which is really necessary, but it's like we're too afraid to even start that conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, it all started right with the whole idea of death panels. Let's not talk about this because the government shouldn't be deciding who lives and who dies. Um, and ultimately, you know, um, people are if, if you don't have a voice back to your point, someone's going to make this decision for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think unless we start having these conversations and you know what, it's not this isn't happening to old people. The average age, at least a few years ago, according to the state of California, the average age of this people living on these units is 56, right? There are 14 units just for children. Wow. This is primarily this, – this, these are people who have been in accidents, car crashes, motorcycle accidents. Um, they've had some kind of trauma. So this isn't the, the traditional nursing home population of people who have gotten old and have Alzheimer's. It's not that. So if you think that, oh, you're 20 or 30 or 40 and this is not something you have to worry about or talk about or prepare for, no, this is a conversation everyone should be having. So I imagine everyone right now is uh, Googling your advanced directives yes. after all this. <laughs> exactly. You know what? I, did, I, I, I filled mine out um, after in 2014 when I started reporting on this. I actually uh, completed an advanced directive. And after all this, how do you feel you've changed as a journalist? Oh, in so many ways. I've been a reporter for so long. And, and of course, we have um, – first of all, I've never believed in objectivity. And I think we know now in journalism that doesn't exist. We all come with our biases, right, our internal biases, how you grew up, where you grew up, all, all kinds of things. Um, and we know that. But we should be fair, right, mm-hmm. and balanced and all of those other things. Um, the the other thing in journalism that I was always sort of taught is we don't form relationships with the people that we cover. Um, we have this distance. That all went out the window. Um, <laughs> when I and you know what I found that 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 the more that I formed relationships with the people involved in this story, the more that I got to know them, the longer that I spent in this environment. I think the closer I got to truth, and I'm going to misquote the line and the the journalist, I'm not going to remember who said this, um, 
you know, the best that we can do is get close to the truth, right? Yeah. And I do feel like um, that's what I've learned. If you spend an hour reporting on something, how close to the truth are you going to get as opposed to a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. And and if that's always the goal, I think that, that truth line, we can nudge up, up against it just a little bit closer um, the longer that we spend reporting on on stories like this. Mm-hmm. And the first two episodes are up right now. Uh, what's coming up next? So episode three drops on Thursday. Um, and I believe it's at the end of episode three. Um, there's a new character that gets mm-hmm. introduced into Room 20. And you'll definitely want to follow that story because um, huge surprises um, and twists that come along with that. Mm-hmm. And uh, these podcasts have only been up for, you know, 12 hours or so. <laughs> What's the response you've gotten so far? Well, you know, I'm getting a lot of Twitter love. So thank you, everyone on Twitter. And I think that's that's wonderful. I, you know, I don't know what that means beyond that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think people are interested, you know, to your point about these nuanced conversations, I, I actually do think that people want to hear more complicated, nuanced stories that that ask bigger questions. I think that, um that, you know, while we like sort of, I mean, I, I love true crime too. <laughs> and I think we all kind of like that. I think we still kind of crave stories that maybe ask bigger existential questions as well. Mm-hmm. This one certainly does. And now that it's all been produced, it's coming out soon, people can follow along on your journey. How cathartic does it feel? Well, um, you know, I I don't want to blow the ending or anything like that, but... Um, it's hard to walk away from a story and from people that you've been covering for such a long time. So I think there's that. Um, yeah, I mean, and I don't know. I don't know if, if the story or the journey is necessarily over for me. Mm-hmm. I think um, I can't imagine just suddenly saying, oh, you know, I'm not interested in this anymore. I'm not going to keep on following this or covering this. So I, I suspect that I'll probably be telling more stories like this. All right. Joanne Farian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. Room 20 is available wherever you get your podcasts or search latimes.com slash room 20. The Los Angeles Times Studios has produced several narrative podcasts about stories of interest to California. They include Dirty John, Larger Than Life, and The Man in the Window. Go to latimes.com slash podcasts for more. Until next time.